late on Friday afternoon, June 2nd, the year 2000, after the evening news had been put to bed and many reporters were gone for the weekend, then President Bill Clinton issued a proclamation designating June as Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. He lauded homosexuals effusively and ended with this statement, quote, Now therefore I, William J. Clinton, President of the United States of America, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and laws of the United States, do hereby proclaim June 2000 as Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. I encourage all Americans to observe this month with appropriate programs, ceremonies, and activities that celebrate our diversity and recognize the gay and lesbian Americans whose many and varied contribution have enriched our national life. In witness whereof I have hereunto set my hand this second day of June in the year of our Lord 2000 and of the independence of the United States of America, the 224th William J. Clinton. So if there was ever any doubt, we know what former President Clinton thinks about homosexuality. But what does God think about it? What is God's assessment of homosexuality? As we begin to answer that question, I would like us to turn together to Romans chapter 1. We're going to begin here and spend most of our time here, though we will be looking at a lot of different passages bouncing around back and forth, but this is sort of our base text, our home base for our look at this topic. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold down the truth in righteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest among them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhood, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. In the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, Burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind 
to do those things which are not fitting. As I read through this section of Scripture on the wrath of God, some of you may be thinking that it seems out of balance because here Paul doesn't anywhere mention the love of God. Why? Well, it's because Paul knew what many people fail to realize today, and that is this. Understanding God's wrath is just as important as understanding God's love. And in fact, you could say you cannot really understand his love or appreciate his love if you don't understand, at least to some degree, his holy and righteous wrath. Donald Wildman put it this way, quote, a lot of people sitting in the pews on Sunday morning probably embrace the humanist view of men far greater than they realize. Perhaps a lot of preaching embraces it as well. We have emphasized love without discipline. This is not Christian love. Christian love is a commitment with discipline. We preach love without calling for repentance or forgiveness. We preach love without preaching on the holiness of God and the awfulness of sin Listen to this statement, very insightful. We try to present a kind of love that everybody will embrace. That no one, including those in the secular world, will find fault with. This is a terrible mistake. No one ever loved more than Jesus, yet Jesus was neither understood nor embraced by everyone, end quote. That is such an insightful statement. No one ever loved more than Jesus, yet Jesus was neither understood nor embraced by everyone. And you could say the same thing about the Apostle Paul. I don't know of any other human being who who has had a greater capacity to love than Paul. When I read his epistles and the number of people to whom he says, I have you in my heart, I'm praying for you, I long for you, And he says to the Romans, I could wish myself a curse from Christ, damned to hell, if it would mean the salvation of my kinsmen. No one had a greater capacity to love other human beings than Paul. Yet he was neither neither understood nor embraced by everyone. In fact, it is not uncommon to hear people accuse Paul of being unloving, to accuse Paul of being narrow, to accuse Paul of being bigoted, to accuse Paul of being chauvinistic. And that's just a short list of the accusations against the Apostle Paul. I remember talking with a Christian lady one time, and let me emphasize, this was a Christian lady, really confident she knew the Lord. And she told me that she doesn't have any trouble with what Jesus said, but she really has a hard time accepting what Paul said. For one thing, that reveals a terrible misunderstanding concerning the doctrine of inspiration. What Jesus said was no more inspired than what Paul said. If you you happen to use a red letter edition of the Bible where the words of Jesus are in red, that's great if it helps set those out for you to notice. But don't think that there's more authority or more inspiration in the red letters than the black letters. And it's important that we understand that as we come to this particular subject. The verses we are going to concentrate on in this message are about homosexuality. So it's important that we understand that these thoughts aren't just Paul's personal opinion or the words of Moses or the words of 
Jude, or whoever happens to be writing these words, these are the very words of God. This is God's assessment of the subject that we're going to be considering. Now let me begin by saying this so that no one misunderstands. Please hear this opening statement. God loves homosexuals. God abhors and hates and condemns homosexuality. In the book of Leviticus, as you well know, homosexuality was subject to the death penalty. But let me hasten to add, it was not the only sin subject to the death penalty. So was cursing your mother or father. And so were other sins. I say that so that we will understand that God hates the sin of homosexuality. But listen, the evidence points to the fact that he doesn't hate it more than every other sin. Doesn't hate it more than he hates pride. He doesn't hate it more than he hates just fill in the blank. So what does God think of homosexuality? He abhors it. He hates it. He condemns it. What does God think of those who have fallen into that sin, lapsed into that sin, chosen that sin? He loves them. To prove this point, look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to the right from Romans past 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, Paul says, And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Now the reason why I have us turn to this passage is so we can see that if God doesn't love homosexuals, follow my line of reason here, if God doesn't love homosexuals, then no homosexuals would ever be saved. Because here... Paul says God's love is one of the motivating sources behind his salvation. God is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And the fact that there are people who have been saved out of homosexuality proves that although God hates homosexuality, he loves the homosexual. Look at 1 Corinthians. Go back to the left toward Romans, but stop it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now, we have a long list here, and these lists are always difficult when you've got New King James, New American Standard, NIV, ESV, and all these translations because they don't always line up. So I'll just read the list and you can try to follow it in whatever translation you use. 
do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I want you to notice the past tense verb. And such were some of you. This church in Corinth was populated with ex-fornicators, ex-idolaters, ex-adulterers, ex-homosexuals, ex-sodomites, ex-thieves, ex-drunkards. What a marvelous display of God's love for sinners. Heaven will be filled with ex-fornicators. And ex-idolaters, ex-adulterers, ex-homosexuals, ex-sodomites, ex-thieves, ex-drunkards who will be trophies of God's grace throughout all eternity. Another thing to notice about this passage is the fact that God lists, are you ready for this one? Covetousness with homosexuality. If you tend to think homosexuality is the worst sin imaginable, and there are people who feel that way about this sin just because they can't relate. They, I don't understand how anyone could have a same-sex attraction. They just don't understand. If you tend to think it's the worst sin imaginable, then ask yourself if you've ever committed the sin of covetousness. This passage also lists, are you ready for this one? Slander with homosexuality. So again, I say, if you tend to think homosexuality is the worst sin imaginable then ask yourself if you've ever committed the sin of slander. But having said that, I don't want to minimize God's hatred for the sin of homosexuality. Look at the book of Jude, second to the last book of the Bible. Find the book of Revelation and just go back to Jude verse 5. Jude verse 5. Jude says, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, their own domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And there, of course, Jude is referring to that bizarre event in Genesis 6 where the sons of God, Bene Elohim, took on human form. These demonic uh, demons took on human form and married women, p- possibly producing a-, a strange offspring which was wiped out in the flood. He says the angels didn't keep their own domain. They didn't stay where they should have stayed, in the, in the domain that God created them in. And then he compares it in verse 7 as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these. That is, the people in these cities didn't stay in their own domain as male and female, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude makes it crystal clear that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin of homosexuality. Let me pause here and make a point of clarification. And I recognize that this statement is controversial, 
but I'm confident it's true. There is a sense in which no one is really a homosexual. There are people who commit homosexual acts, but no one is a homosexual in the sense that it's a condition. Or, of course, the more popular term today is gay. No one is gay as a condition. It's not a hopeless condition. It's a choice to go with a sinful bent or a sinful inclination. Now, the reason why I stress this point is because some people try to excuse homosexuality by saying they they were born that way. They were born with this tendency toward this They were drawn toward it from from early on. And my response is, not, not to be callous, but my response is, so what? Even if that is true, and and the evidence is far from conclusive. You know, there are those who would try to tell us, oh, it's a proven fact, it's genetic, you know, just the way people are born. The, The evidence is far from conclusive. But even if it's true. There are people who say they are born with a tendency toward alcoholism, toward drunkenness, toward a violent temper, toward drug addiction, toward molestation, and you could add more to the list. So are we supposed to accept all those kinds of behavior just because people say, that's the way I was born? No, no, we don't justify those activities by saying, well, that's the way I was born. After all, God says we are born sinners, does he not? We're all born sinners. We are all born with a predisposition towards sin, and it may be different sins. Maybe you're born with a predisposition toward drunkenness, toward homosexuality, toward lying, toward just fill in the blank. But that doesn't let us off the hook. That doesn't excuse or justify our actions. And that stands true for the sin of homosexuality also. Former homosexual Guy Charles told a correspondent for a national newspaper these words, quote, Nobody is born gay. You are born male or female, and the conditioning you receive as you grow up shapes your sexual development. At some point in our lives, we make a decision either physically or mentally to participate in a sexual act. The decision is repeated over and over until it's a habit, and the habit forms the lifestyle, end quote. That's from a former homosexual. And once a person forms the lifestyle, often the person forms mannerisms to appeal to other sodomites. Make no mistake about it, beloved, beloved homosexuality is a choice. It is a sinful choice. And again, I'm not denying that there could be some, some tendency toward it. But that doesn't, again, that, that doesn't excuse it. doesn't justify it. It's still a choice. It's no different than this same type of thing we're, we're told to believe about alcoholism, that it's a disease. Well, listen, it's not a disease in the sense that it's just something you catch. You reach your hand out and grab alcohol and put it in your mouth. And then you're hooked. So that's not, that's not the classic definition of a disease. We all recognize that there may be some people who have more of a predisposition toward alcoholism if they expose themselves. But it doesn't excuse the behavior. And those who practice homosexuality have to admit that is the case if they are ever going to experience salvation, forgiveness, 
and victory. If you deny the disease, you eliminate the cure. If you say you can't help it, you're just a victim of circumstances, then, then you, you can't know forgiveness because there is no forgiveness apart from repentance. And by the way, this sin isn't anything new. We hear a lot about it today because of our president's wrong stand on the issue and because it is continually you know, pushed at us and forced upon us in the media. But it isn't anything new. As we just saw here in Jude, all the way back in Genesis, God records the fact that one of the reasons why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah was because the place was full of people who had chosen to throw themselves into this lifestyle of homosexuality. By the way, that's why the Bible often refers to this sin as sodomy. It comes from the name of the, the city, Sodom. And the Bible often refers to people who commit this sin as sodomites. That's not a pejorative. That's not name-calling. It's connecting the sin to where it was so rampant all the way back in the book of Genesis. To further see God's assessment of and attitude toward this sin, back up with me to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy. Now, some of you might be thinking, hold it. We're going back into Old Testament law, and we're not under the law, so is this valid? Well, I, I appreciate your concern, but we all know, if you have consistent hermeneutic, that if something is in the Old Covenant and then reiterated in the New Covenant, then it is still something that applies or carries over. If it's something that's in the Old Covenant, like you, you know, you're not allowed to eat pork, but it's rescinded in the New Testament or the New Covenant, then it's not binding. But these passages we're going to look at, we'll see that the, the topic is reiterated in the New Covenant. So you can't dismiss these passages by saying, oh, this doesn't apply today because it's in the Old Covenant. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. That shows how strongly God feels about the distinction between the sexes. And by the way, just as a side note, that is really at the core of this whole issue. God made them male and female. He, God made us male and female. And he wants men to be men and women to be women. And ever since sin entered, Satan has tried to corrupt that in any way he can. God wants men to be men, women to be women. God feels strongly about the distinction between the sexes. And the Hebrew wording here in this verse refers more to more than just clothing. It would refer to ornaments and jewelry. God, again, wants men to be men and women to be women. And he wants men to look like men and he wants women to look like women. That's why it is so bothersome to see men wearing women's jewelry or women dressing like men, trying to look like men in their dress. God made us male and female. But Satan continually tries to blur the distinction between the sexes. By the way, it's important to note what this verse is not saying because sadly this passage has often been misrepresented. This passage is not saying that it's wrong. This is how it's often used. That it's inherently wrong for a woman to wear pants. Maybe you've heard preachers use this verse to say, Women, God wants you to wear dresses and skirts and men to wear pants. Well, the problem with that view is the fact that when this was written, men wore skirts. Right? I mean, if you've seen how they often dressed. So the point of the passage, again, 
is God wants men to be men, women to be women, and he wants men to look like men and women to look like women. Skip over to chapter 23. Chapter 23, verse 1. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to elaborate on that verse, all right? It took a lot of nerve for me just to read it. But why, why would God say something like this? I'll tell you why. Because this issue of men trying to make themselves women through sex change surgery started a long time ago. It's not a current issue. Even way back here, there were, you can research it, there were heathen practices all the way back during the time of Moses where the men would emasculate themselves so they wouldn't be men. And God told the people of Israel, his people, that it was strictly forbidden for them to copy those practices. Look at the book of Leviticus, back to the left a little bit. Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defy yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. Again, it shows us God's attitude toward sodomy. He calls it an abomination. Skip over to chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 13. Here God says, If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Now here's an interesting statement. Their blood shall be upon them. God prescribed the death penalty for this kind of behavior. And then he added here at the end of the verse that those who do this kind of thing are responsible for their actions. They can't make excuses. Can't say it's not our fault. We can't help it. This is just the way we were born. It's, our, it's genetic. It's, you know, it's our chromosomes or it's whatever. No, God doesn't recognize any of that. He, their blood is on them. They are responsible. God doesn't recognize the, the excuses we hear today. I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. It's hereditary. It's a chemical imbalance. It's a hormonal imbalance. No, no. The Word of God teaches that a person who chooses to do this kind of thing is responsible before God. So with all this as background, let's just go to Romans chapter 1 to see what the Holy Spirit says through Paul about this subject. Romans chapter 1, which we read earlier, verse 26. Romans chapter 1, verse 26. The Holy Spirit through Paul says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. 
By the way, we're jumping into this verse and kind of losing sight of the bigger picture. But this is the second of three times in this passage where Paul mentions that God gave them up. He says that in verse 24. He will say it again in verse 28. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them over. Beloved, listen. The first sign of the wrath of God is not a major earthquake. The first sign of the wrath of God is not a lightning bolt from heaven. The first sign of the wrath of God is not a violent storm. The first sign of the wrath of God is letting men and women pursue their passions in an unrestrained manner. It's important that we understand that. As we look around today, we see our country filled with immorality. And we might tend to think that God doesn't really care about it because it doesn't seem like he's doing anything about it. Don't believe it. God's holy and righteous wrath is against sinful men and women, so he gives them over to the consequences of their sin. He lets them go to pursue it. That's what we see happening in our nation today. God has given our nation over to vile passions, as Paul describes in verses 24 and 26. There's a sense in which Paul's description of man's depravity in this passage increases with intensity. In verse 24, he says God gave them up in their lusts. In verse 26, he says God gave them up to their passions. A lust is a single evil desire. A passion is a constant burning obsession. A lust is can be checked like a fire that is just starting. A passion is an inferno that overwhelms all constraint and controls someone completely. So as the passage unfolds, the description becomes more intense. In the middle of verse 26, Paul says, For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Then in verse 27, he mentions the men. This raises the question, why does he mention the women first? After all, women are in the minority when it comes to homosexuality. There's no doubt about that. But he starts with the women first to show how low society sinks when it has abandoned God and has been abandoned by God. Women are usually the last to go into the depth of this kind of depravity. Generally speaking, women are purer and more modest So Paul begins with women to show how low sinful humanity can fall when it abandons God and is abandoned by God. A while back I had lunch with a gentleman here in our church who recently started a new job at a professional place of business. He told me that, he told me what a shock it has been to hear the way the other professionals talk. He said their language is absolutely foul. And what surprised him the most was that the women talk the same way and about the same things as the men. That's a sign of a society abandoned by God. Verse 26 says the women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. This is the second exchange mentioned in this context. The first one is in verse 25 where it says, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That strikes at the heart of this whole issue. Verse 25 does. Men and women think they have the right to play God and make any kind of exchanges they want to make. 
Men and women think they can set up their own standards. They, they think they can play by their own rules. They think they can convolute what God says about any and every subject so they change the rules to fit their lifestyle and preferences. And it all starts in verse 25 when they exchange the truth of God for the lie. Satan told Eve that if she would just eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then she would be as God. Well, that's the, that's the lie that Satan has promoted ever since. He convinces man that God isn't good and God doesn't want what is best for his creatures. Satan convinces man he should be his own God and he should worship himself and not the Creator. As verse 21 says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Instead, men put themselves in the place of God. And the result is verse 27. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. The word that is translated lust in this verse is not the common term that is used in the New Testament for lust. It specifically refers to inordinate, irrational, sexual lust. Notice that Paul goes into more detail here in verse 27 when he comments on the homosexual behavior of men. He only mentioned the fact when he used the example of women in verse 26. But here he describes the perversity of the men in more detail. He says they burned in their lust for one another. This could be translated, they were inflamed in their lust for one another. It is describing the intensity of the desire. I understand from my research on this subject that the burning level of lust among many homosexualities, homosexuals far exceeds the natural and strong sex drive among heterosexuals. It is not uncommon it is not uncommon for homosexual males to have 300 partners a year. You see, this, you see this kind of inflamed lust in the story of the homosexuals in Sodom. They were so driven. You know the story. They were so driven by their desire to have sexual relations with the angels visiting Lot that even after the angels struck them with blindness, they still violently searched for the door to Lot's house to get to these angels because they thought they were men. That's the, the kind of burning lust that many, maybe not all, but many homosexuals have. In fact, the lust is so strong that it often results in murderous jealousy. The former New York City forensic expert, Dr. Milton Helpern, who makes no claim of being a Christian, please hear that, who, who made no claim of being a Christian and avoided making moral judgments about homosexuality, says that after having performed thousands of autopsies, he would warn anyone who chooses a homosexual lifestyle to be prepared for the consequences. Here's a quote from him. When we see brutal multiple wound cases in a single victim, we just automatically assume that we're dealing with a homosexual victim and a homosexual attacker. I don't know why it is so, but it seems that the violent explosions of jealousy among homosexuals far exceed those of the jealousy of a man for a woman or a woman for a man. The pent-up charges and energy of the homosexual relationship simply cannot be contained. When the explosive point is reached, the result is brutally violent. But this is the normal pattern of these homosexual attacks, the multiple stabbings, the multiple senseless beatings that obviously must continue long after the victim dies, end quote. That comes from a non 
Christian. A San Francisco coroner estimated that 10% of his city's homicides were probably related to activity among homosexuals. Some mass murderers, many mass murderers, seem to be homosexuals, as we saw in the case of Jeffrey Dahmer. In spite of all of this evidence, and beloved, the evidence, I wish I had time to give you more of the evidence. It is so suppressed. The evidence, people don't want the evidence out there. But in spite of all the evidence, there are still people today who try to claim that homosexuality is not abnormal, it's not harmful, it's just different. And oftentimes, those who take God's position on the issue are accused of being unloving because we won't condone this kind of lifestyle. We are accused of persecuting innocent people who can't help being what they are and who aren't a threat to society anyway. But in verse 27, God says this kind of behavior is shameful. This is strong language for Paul to be writing in a letter that was going to the city of Rome. Think about this. Because 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. What if this letter fell into the hands of the Roman government and made it to one of the emperors? Paul didn't worry about that because what he was writing was and is the truth of God. He refused to compromise. He stated God's assessment of this kind of activity and just let the chips fall where they may. Dr. Stifler wrote this, quote, when God gave them up, the original moral corruption in the blood showed itself in foul moral ulcers and human virtue proved to be less than that of the beasts of the field among which the barriers of sex are not crossed, end quote. By the way, the fact that Paul uses the word natural in verse 26 and in verse 27 shows that he regards the union of the sexes in marriage as a natural relationship. The reason why I stress this is because some people wrongly assume that because the Bible condemns sexual perversion that somehow that means it is anti-human sexuality. That is not true. The Bible is not anti-sex. The Bible is anti-sexual immorality and sexual perversion. But the normal, natural, good sexual relationship between husbands and wives is a proper, natural, good thing. And because it is such a good thing, God punishes those who violate it or degrade it or cheapen it. You see, every culture protects what it regards as sacred with safeguards and taboos. A rule against stealing, for example, does not reflect a low view of property, but a high view of it. The prohibition of murder shows that a society regards life as sacred rather than cheap. In the same way, because God regards sex between a husband and wife as a high and sacred and good and noble and proper thing, he protects it with prohibitions against perversion and judgment against those who violate it. That's what the last phrase of verse 27 is talking about. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. God's judgment rests on those who participate in these kinds of acts. If anyone doubts that, then visit an AIDS hospital ward and see how many of the men are there because of homosexuality and see the price they are paying for their sin. 
And even those who don't experience something like that still pay the price for this choice because homosexual, homosexual behavior has an effect upon men's bodies and minds, corrupting, destroying, and disintegrating. Those who embrace a homosexual lifestyle are judged by the self-destructiveness of their own sinful choice. It all starts when men and women reject God and embrace humanism. The result is their humanism ends up dehumanizing them. You see, homosexual behavior, beloved, is more than just perversion. Perversion is the illicit and twisted expression of that which is God-given and natural. Homosexuality is inversion, which is the expression of that which is neither God-given nor natural. As one man put it, when man forsakes the author of nature, he inevitably forsakes the order of nature. But there is a ray of hope in this twisted world of homosexuality. It is this. Where there is true repentance, God grants forgiveness. But that's not all. God doesn't only grant forgiveness to repentant homosexuals. He grants victory over the sin. I want us to close by looking at the passage we looked at at the Back at the beginning of the message, back at 1 Corinthians, it's just over to the right from Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Notice these great verses once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. As I said, this church was this church in Corinth was populated with ex-fornicators, ex-idolaters, ex-adulterers, ex-homosexuals, ex-sodomites, ex-slanderers, ex-whatever you want to say. What a marvelous display of God's love for all of us. I mean, think about it. Every one of us in this room, we are all ex-somethings, right? Heaven will be filled. Heaven will be filled with ex-fornicators, Ex-idolaters, ex-adulterers, ex-homosexuals, ex-sodomites, ex-thieves, ex-drunkards, ex-coveters, ex-slanderers who will be trophies of God's grace throughout eternity. I hope you'll be there. You won't be there unless you're willing to repent of your sin, whatever it is, and embrace the Lord Jesus. I am thrilled to be able to announce to you that when your life is hidden with Christ, God makes sure your past is a past that is past. Let's pray together. Oh, what a marvelous gospel, Father, that you set forth in your word. What a glorious gospel. A gospel that announces forgiveness. A gospel that announces transformation. A gospel that announces change. A gospel that announces hope. A gospel that frees us from sin, whatever the sin is. Whatever the sin that binds us. Whatever the sin that enslaves us. 
the sin of sin of lying, the sin of thievery, the sin of homosexuality, the sin of adultery, of drunkenness, covetousness, slander. Father, thank you for the glorious gospel that is offered to us in Christ. Thank you that there is hope. There is hope regardless of what we battle or struggle with or what we have a tendency toward or a predisposition toward or what we've given ourselves to. There is always, always hope in the gospel of Christ. Father, I pray we would celebrate that. I pray that we would embrace it. That we would not be those who excuse our sin and rationalize and try to justify and try to excuse, but rather just face it. Just face it and acknowledge that we need the transforming power of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.